0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Charlene von Heil. Washington's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden is showing Charlene von Heil's Snake Eyes, a survey of paintings von Heil has made since 2005. The exhibition, which is on view through January 27th of next year, was curated by the Hershorn's Evelyn C. Hankins and Dirk Luckow of Hamburg's Deichter Holland with assistance from Sandy Gutman, which originated the exhibition. The catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. It's quite an object. Amazon offers it for $95. Von Heil is a New York and Marfa, Texas-based abstract painter whose work engages art history and the way images are constructed. She has been the subject of solo exhibitions at museums such as the Tate Liverpool, the Kunsthalle Nuremberg, the ICA Boston, the ICA Philadelphia, the Vienna Secession, and more. She was previously a guest on episode number two, wow, of The Man Podcast. We'll have a link to that show on our show page. On the second segment, Rebecca Bedell discusses her new book, Moved to Tears, Rethinking the Art of the Sentimental in the United States. But first, Charlene von Heil, after a break. Since opening in 2005, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University has been dedicated to building a groundbreaking collection of contemporary art centered on diversity and inclusion, The museum's emphasis is on artists historically underrepresented, overlooked, or excluded from art institutions, with a particular focus on artists of African descent. In this effort, the museum supports global artists of extraordinary vision whose works spark opportunities for thoughtful engagement. Drawing primarily on the collection built over the last 12 years, the exhibition People Get Ready, Building the Contemporary Collection, includes works dating from 1970 through 2018 that address issues ranging from identity to social justice and environmentalism. People Get Ready extends into a second pavilion, integrating some contemporary art among historical works in the collection. In doing so, connections across time, space, and culture become possible and present the opportunity for challenging dialogue. A related mini-exhibition, People Get Ready, Southern Lens, explores Southern culture through the museum's rapidly growing photography collection. An early breakthrough work by Fred Wilson, Colonial Collection, anchors the Arts of Africa Gallery among traditional works of art from the continent. A painting by Kahindi Wiley is now on view in the European Gallery. A work by Pedro Lash reflects upon works in the Art of the Americas Gallery. A photograph by Eve Sussman brings a new dimension to the Medieval Gallery. All at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Adrian Piper, Concepts and Intuitions, 1965 to 2016. The first West Coast Museum exhibition of the artist's work in more than a decade. This is a rare opportunity to experience Adrian Piper's provocative and wide-ranging artwork, which directly addresses gender, race, xenophobia, social engagement, and self-transcendence. Also on view at the Hammer, Stones to Stains, the drawings of Victor Hugo. Featuring over 75 drawings and photographs from major European and American collections, this landmark exhibition reconsiders Hugo's experimental and enigmatic practice as a visual artist for a new generation of audiences in America. Exhibition details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free for good. On view through December 30th at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, Micheline Thomas, I Can't See You Without Me, explores the artist's ongoing dialogue with authorship, identity, desire, and the historically charged relationship between artist and muse. Each of the Wex's four galleries is devoted to one of the most significant muses in Thomas's career, including the artist herself. Among the more than 50 works presented are her signature rhinestone-encrusted paintings, as well as collage, sculptures, installations, and a new multi-channel video collaboration with Grammy-winning artist Terry Lynn Carrington, created with support from a WEX Artist Residency Award. Don't miss the chance to see one of the season's most anticipated exhibitions at its only venue. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Bringing together more than 80 objects, the Nasher Sculpture Center's The Nature of ARP provides a long overdue look at the achievements of Jean, Hans, Arp, one of the most important and multifaceted artists of the modern era. On view at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through January 6th, 2019. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. And we're back, Charlene von Heil, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me again.
0: In preparing to talk to you, I read an interview you did with Jason Farrago for Even Magazine a year or two ago, and I've kind of been thinking about it ever since, both in <laughs> in relation to your work and to, and to other painting. And you said to Jason that, quote, the flatness is important to me, the flatness in your own paintings. And you said that I do sand them down if they're not flat enough. And your paintings are indeed relentlessly and eagerly and necessarily flat. Why is flatness so important to you and how did it become so important to you?
1: I think if the uh, background, if the painting is not flat, then I cannot mix and match the layers in a way that is confounding to the viewer. You know, like uh, the history of the painting is much more readable if you can see outlines of earlier shapes in the painting or if so it's just a way of uh, freshening the paintings up and bringing them back to a point where i can add another layer without that it translates immediately into a linear uh, process it's not much more than that actually it's not a greenbergian obsession which is something that you could project onto it
0: no it doesn't i mean your paintings don't seem greenbergian at at all. I mean, there, there, the the life of each painting is there contained on, on the surface of the painting. So you build up your, 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 your paintings layer by layer, one layer on top of the other. And quite often, not always, I guess, but quite often the viewer can, can see the life and history of the thing. You know, we can look backward almost into time. We can look backward into space, but maybe only, you know, like half of a millimeter or something, you know, very small amount. Are you interested in in building layer upon layer upon layer as being a kind of reference to or metaphor for illusionistic space?
1: Yes, and there's the actual physical space, and those are two very different things. So the visual space of my paintings is pretty defined as well in a certain way. I would say it goes something like visually maybe five inches into the paintings, but about like five feet out of the painting into the space between the beholder and the canvas. And I think that's an interesting thing. If if the painting, the more material surface the painting has, the more I get stuck on the actual canvas. So to create a visual bubble, so to speak, uh, that's almost sculptural, I need to have the image freed from those constraints.
0: So in a painting such as, just to pick one kind of a random, I kind of opened the catalog and... and Pick the first one that, <laughs> that I saw that fit. A painting like Lady Moth from 2017, in which there is a dark element, a dark shape in the center foreground. I mean, it's obviously super flat on, on the canvas, but do you like the idea that that element, even as it's flat, seems to create kind of a bubble toward the viewer?
1: Yes, and uh, that uh, painting especially, for example, it looks as if you have blue shapes on white, but the truth is that the whole painting was blue painting. The, so I made the whole, actually with a broom on the laying on the floor, I made a Max Ernstian sort of suggestive background that started to tell me stories about what was possible. And onto that blue painting, I drew those flame shapes with one go out of the arm movement and then filled in the white later. So now it looks as if those flame shapes are on top of a white background. And I always insist on the white background being this white acrylic so uh, that it doesn't age. If it would be oil color, you would have this yellowing objectness of oil paint and of um, this visceral reaction to it like that. It is this almost plasticky (laughs) rejection of the gaze.
0: It's funny you mentioned a broom because I had in my notes to ask you how you're, what you're using to put paint on canvas these days. What kinds of, I mean, are you using brushes?
1: i 've always used brushes, but i don 't use them the way uh, let's say I just read that Julian Schnabel was telling uh, what 's his name in the hisman goth movie how to uh, how a man has to hold a brush and it is like a sword. <laughs> so there is this image of him holding showing uh, how to hold a brush and he holds it at the very end with uh, of his lengthened arm and at the end of of the brush and uh, it's touching the canvas with, with the tip of the to so to make a very loose and masterly and uh, I would think genius gesture and that's probably what people associate when they think of somebody doing brushwork I use the brush in a very uh, different and in a very pragmatic way. That's not an expression of my drawing or my... For that, I use a pencil. So a lot of the expression and the moves that are in the paintings that come from one fluid movement are actually charcoal or pencil. And then I use the brush to fill the space out. And I fill it out so you don't see any brush strokes. So the brush as an idea is not relevant for the paintings.
0: Do you use screens or anything else to build shapes or anything else on the canvases?
1: Yeah, I use cutouts and I use uh, tape and I use stencils and I use all kinds of stuff to build up things. Uh, I, I always try to have things fall into place that is urgent and arbitrary at the same time. And for that, it needs to be under my control and at the same time uh, have something uh, playful and or accidental about it.
0: One One reason I was wondering how... The, the, the paintings are being built these days is that a number of the most recent works in the show, you know, some really from this year, from early, early this year, feature tightly packed black and white forms that build up and build up and cover the entire surface of the painting. And in some of them, there is this one or maybe two moments of anomaly. There's a, a yellow form or a red form or maybe like a little funky shape that looks like a mustache or something. And these paintings are a real departure from where you've been for the last 15 years In that they kind of, and I mean this as a compliment, they kind of rely on that blip. They kind of rely on that moment of profound disjunctiveness. So how did you find that little blip thing and what about it works for you? What about it is important to you?
1: It's interesting that you point that out because that is actually almost like the one, I've always been a painter who holds his horses for the longest time and that seems to be the one moment when they just start running with me or without me, mainly without me at that point. (laughs) So that is the the moment that uh, is so satisfying where the painting uh, becomes so much aware of its own speed that it's making me things do more than I am forcing the painting to slowly build up. Suddenly it actually knows where to go. Uh, and that's always dangerous to talk in those terms, but I think that it is actually something that is interesting because it uh, becomes so much an event.
0: So in a painting like Soul Rag, which is entirely black and white with these kind of forms that hover between Arp and Stuart Davis or something, or maybe a little bit of Philip Taft too, entirely black and white. And then in kind of the upper right middle, there is just this kind of vaguely lemon shaped mark of yellow. So it sounds like you're kind of explaining that as being involuntary, that you just got to a point and it had to be there intuitively?
1: Yes. That thing was yellow before I knew it, basically. I've been talking about that before. It has something to do with this phenomenon that I found out lately or that I'm thinking about. I'm I'm, I'm not sure if I can formulate it precisely, but I've become aware of the fact that I basically do not think in images and that this is actually something that's not normal. It explains also why I don't remember faces well. But I realized that in general, thought for me is not linked to images in a way that conveys something. And I wonder how much my practice and being a painter and having this hunger and need to uh, create images has to do with that and how much it actually helps me in uh, never being bound to an idea while I'm actually working at it and having the process taking over in a way that it actually can gallop away with me with the painting.
0: That's, That's interesting because I think some of the recent paintings offer moments where you give us something visually that might not seem to fit but that is still acutely familiar so that little lemon in soul rag or in a painting like Nunez N-U-N-E-Z there's a moth there's a moth form that repeats against these kind of Arpian Matisse cutout forms so why is why is it useful or fun or necessary or whatever the right (laughs) the right word is to give the viewer something so immediately recognizable as is like that little moth in Nunez
1: are things that jumped into the paintings from uh, the drawing practice. I used that exact same moth in exact exact same size first in a print that I did in Chinadi where I used actually this French technique of stenciling, pochoir. And to do that, I actually had to cut out something like 50 of those moths to, uh, to find out how I would place them on the paper. So, you know, like those actual moths were sort of flying around the studio for a while and they ended up in paintings. (laughs) Sometimes the solution to questions is much easier than
0: (laughs) you think. Is the following important to you? We recognize the moth because we know what moths look like. But in these recent paintings from 2017-18, there are these forms that I keep weirdly describing as Arpian, matisse cutoutian, Philip Taff, Playboy Bunny, Arp, quite
1: a range of images that come together there.
0: (laughs) Right. So is it, but anybody who knows anything about art recognized, you know, can find those things in them. They're immediately.
1: They're called organic shapes. Yeah. I mean,
0: but they're organic shapes with a certain art history.
1: That 's true, but the art history for organic shapes exists because uh, if you let your hand loose in an elegant way, it will always make those shapes. you're know, like it is a physical phenomenon as much as an artist historical, and i'm more and more inclined to just get uh, upset as at. This very simplifying art historical sort of uh, digging, because sometimes uh, a moth is just a moth or a shape is just a shape. You know, like a certain way of the flame figures, for example, are just a very natural way of moving uh, the arm in a baroque. Sort of movement. That's uh, the most natural way that uh, functions. And it does have a very mid-century feeling now because that was when, you know, like architecture was and furniture and art was actually celebrating those shapes the most. I think that's where you go back to. It was the first uh, appearance of shapes after a very rigid Mondrian sort of grid uh, philosophy of spiritual painting. And before there was the minimalism that came afterwards that erased shape at all. But if you just let a fluid shape appear in a painting, it is going to have this organic feel like an Arpian shape.
0: There are a lot of your paintings that have what you describe that organic feel that movement of hand and arm but that also simultaneously within the painting have references to to screen printing various kinds of Bende like but not exactly Bende dots much has been made by critics of how you kind of don't have a single recognizable style or thing that you always pursue but to the but but if you do is it that
1: I think I absolutely do. And I start to think that, you know, like this is actually starting to be a bit annoying that everybody seems to think that there is nothing recognizable. You go to an art fair and to see you see one of my paintings and you will immediately know that it's one of my paintings. And I find that uh, it's sort of a strange helplessness on the side of the people who say that and I have to say, it is something that does not get mentioned so much anymore. And I'm glad that those exhibitions, like the Hirschhorn where you uh, absolutely uh, realize uh, there is a thread that runs through all the paintings, also stylistically, in a very obvious way, is going to put those rumors to rest, so to speak.
0: Because for, for me, the fundamental thing that... that happens almost throughout your oeuvre is this tension between ways of making marks uh, whether it's the brushy handsiness or or the references to screen printing or the outlines of shapes or the outlines of forms you know as if something is being traced is is that is is the tension within a single work between ways of putting images onto a canvas is that something that's important to you having having multiple ways Putting things onto can- canvas visible to the viewer is that important?
1: Yes, of course. It's just that I love a giant toolbox. You know, like it's just it, it's like a, a writer who you know like enjoys having maybe not only a huge vocabulary but also several languages to uh, have access to. It is just more is more. That's always been my philosophy. But I do think that in the end they bend them into paintings that are actually uh, speaking to each other in the same mode. You have one painting that will maybe have a completely different mood than the next painting, but uh, in the course of the body of work that it is part of, it will have its place and its conversation on par with uh, what is happening that year or that decade one of the things I, I
0: really love about your paintings is that they are so chock full of the history of painting and art making There are references to, to other painters and artists. There are borrowed bits. There are, you know, they're just packed with the visual history of visual language. Right. And, and that's great. And I love it. and, I learn it is it more. never
1: direct, so. No, um, no, no.
0: You have to go. Don't find forget it. that, it's,
1: and yeah, and it is not even immediate. As it has to do, obviously, with the fact that I'm a painter, and I think we even talked about that in the first podcast, who uh, is addicted to looking at images. So, to create a mood, I kind of uh, juggle a bunch of references or, you know, like things that I'm looking at together. Uh, where I think this is going to make a dissonance or, you know, like those are notes that are going to create a melody that hasn't been out there yet. But, you know, like for that, I actually pick up on moods uh, that I've seen in uh, artworks that have been around, often by the overlooked.
0: Do you think of your paintings as mostly living within the history of painting or are there outside things, you know, science, politics, whatever else, that you hope people find or pick up on within them?
1: I would say neither nor, because the word history of painting is not exactly covering what I mean. It is actually because that would be, you know, like a quotation of the intellectual uh, potential of the reference, you know, like that if I put something in that, will, end, that uh, will remind you of, say, Werner Held or something which definitely has appeared, something of a post war German uh, aesthetic. Uh, it doesn't mean that I'm referring it to uh, make a point about post-war Germany. It just uh, makes a point about a certain way of conveying a mood in a funky and sad way at the same time. So I'm not sure if that's important that it is exactly from the time and that it is needs to be known who I'm referring to. So I'm always bristling at the idea of it being a quotation I wonder if, you know, like as a painter, I don't have just uh, this desire to live in a universe of painting and this informs my way of uh, shaping whatever ends up on the canvas, but it's just not so simply direct and it's not about the history of it as something that needs to be discovered and it is not what makes the painting swing, it's not what the painting is about. But in the same time, you know, like the moss, for example, yes, I was looking at, you know, like I I bought several books about different moths and the way that they're painted and the the way they look and uh, the shape on lady moss uh, that's in the foreground is actually, you know, like out of a book about moss, a big uh, shape of very peculiar bark moss or something like that.
0: You know, of course, you are having said that, I have to ask about... Uh, maybe the only painting in your only oeuvre that is or seems to be very specifically about a single other artwork, and that painting is Melancholia, from 2008. The title certainly recalls the famed 1514 Albrecht Dürer engraving, and indeed your your painting features a big round thing, a ball, a crystal ball, something like that, that is in the Dürer. Um, there's kind of this bingo card-like. I mean, I'm using an anachronistic term. Of course
1: <laughs> no, I was only later realizing that that exactly was those. Uh, I think they even have a different uh, name: the, the doodles that you do in the newspaper. You know, like where you have to, where every uh, line has to add up to say, to the same sum. It's actually those yeah. are magic squares as well. Uh, yeah, that
0: that Japanese number game.
1: Exactly, uh, I forgive. So
0: we'll have images, of course. <laughs> both of these artworks on on manpodcast.com so listeners can bail bail me out so this is this this painting really sticks out as as something unusual in your oeuvre I mean you rarely direct a single artist or single artwork this directly so why did you do it here
1: I didn't start the painting like that again, uh, but I did start it in a dark mood. And I was uh, listening to Schubert and Winterreise over and over again. So I wanted to begin with, in that ball, I have almost like in ice some shapes, and there are some flower shapes, some very tentative strokes, some very almost sad little squiggles. So there's something very defeated in that ball that does something together with the sheer immense presence of the ball itself and that was then in my studio for a long time just like that this big gray ball and i realized it needed something else Uh, i did this very simple graphic thing that came straight out of dura's melancholia which had to do with the simple fact that that particular postcard of melancholia the woman sitting the angel or uh, melancholia the goddess whatever you would call it sitting like Rodin, the thinker, and surrounded by the symbols of melancholy thought, and one of them being the gray ball, uh, but one of them also being the magic square that's etched in there. So it basically jumped like the moss that were flying around my studio. In that case, it was that postcard that jumped into the painting, and I just thought that would be the ideal graphic counterpoint to make that present. Of that ball, even more unavoidable.
0: What's what's really amazing about this painting is that as the viewer looks at at the ball in your painting, el- individual elements from from the Durer engraving become evident. You know, the, the the angel or goddess or whatever it is that you referenced, the leaves in the crown around her head are are pretty much. Not quite directly quoted in, in in your crystalish ball, but they're definitely there. The sextant she's holding or the compass or whatever that's called. I guess it's a compass is 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 there in your crystal ball. You you uh, kind of threw all of the element not all, but many of the elements of the painting into space that you controlled.
1: Yeah, and even without knowing it, because at that time I hadn't even looked at that painting yet. I only started to look at it after I had painted the ball with all its inhabitants. So, uh, But I think that's also the power of painting and the weirdness about life that, uh, as you said earlier, everything is somehow connected in this strange way. And I believe very much in uh, serendipity and in uh, what is called those happy accidents that make you that link things and times and those coincidences that just make things swing throughout the day and I think that's something that painting the more you let yourself go into it the more you can link it to your own imagination and your own life and I always want to leave those openings so that whoever looks at it has a chance of attaching uh, him or herself to it. I think that's really important and so far I don't want to you know, like have a, a recipe for interpretation ever.
0: You know, it, th- this is a slightly unfair question because it's hard to ask people about what they have not done, right? <laughs> But, but this is really, at least so far as I can think of the only time in your oeuvre that you aligned one of your paintings with a single other artwork as closely. Did you find in, you know, the, the 10 years since that, that you got too close to a single thing or did you, did you enjoy it just that once? How do you know why you never hewed as closely to a single artwork with one of your paintings? The way you did then in 2008?
1: Because in that case, it, it didn't attach itself so much uh, to Dürer himself as to the idea of melancholia. So because the painting was so much about that particular mood and the etching of Dürer's is so uh, iconic in respect it. I think that this was just a very strangely enough literal way of uh, insisting on uh, a mood, which I usually uh, prefer to convey in a more visceral or uh, visual uh, way.
0: Ah, the power—the power of a single powerful image to uh, to form our idea of what a thing is.
1: Iconic image. So, in a certain way. Uh, I still created a new iconic image because, obviously, you know, like it's it's actually an abstract painting, but it uh, because I did link it immediately in in a certain immediacy to the iconic image uh, that Dürer created. I thought that was make, making a interesting point.
0: We were talking earlier about how, I don't know, it's a phrase I overuse, but how there there, there are various unities within your work that that make them plainly recognizable as von Heil's. And I wanted to ask about a couple of things that have recurred across many paintings over the last 10 or 15 years. One of them is, is your use of stripes. They've been in work such as, and we'll have images of all of these on manpodcast.com, works such as Black Stripe Mojo or Slow Tramp from 2009 and 2012 respectively but they also work their way into the work in more surreptitious ways such as the kind of musical staffs and paintings such as Lady Moth from just last year so what do stripes do for you what what makes them interesting or or useful
1: The stripes are actually one of four modes of patterning that I use. And it was the first one, and structurally is the one that saves a lot of paintings just because it gives it uh, such an overwhelming graphic skeleton to uh, hang itself on, you know, like drape itself over, that it's extremely helpful as a visual component. Uh, But by now, I have started with the stripes but then the harlequin pattern was started to be very important and that led to a zigzag pattern that you see very often which in the last paintings turned into stars you know like which for me were just dots surrounded by zigzags and opposed to those very hard lined graphic elements uh, more baroque organic moves that we were talking earlier are actually also in my mind uh, just a way of patterning that gives uh, you know like a structure to a painting and uh, that talks about the hand in an inverted way because it's not the direct move of a brush stroke it is actually the move of uh, the line as outline and as drawing that underlies the painting. For the line, in a certain way, is the dirty secret of all my paintings.
0: You, yeah, you mentioned the zigzag. That, they even end up looking like trees or pine air fresheners in a painting like Wald Baldwin, Zamkite. You know, another interesting thing about the stripes, and I wonder if this is intentional or conscious, is, you know, in your work from the early 2000s, there are lots of grids, and, and, and you're mostly using grids to break them down, to dissolve them, to, to poke them in the eye. And as the stripes stay in the paintings uh, over the next 15 years, you know, because stripes are, are like half of a grid, they're like the horizontal or the vertical part of the grid, they kind of live as a reference to the grid while not being a grid. Is that intentional?
1: I just see the stripes and the grid as the same thing. I mean, the stripes in the paintings where the stripes stand alone uh, and almost sometimes become the paintings, it's just more pure act of celebrating them as decorative elements. But uh, And you might have noticed that those black shapes that are dominant in the paintings that we talked about at the beginning. The Recent ones, yeah. That suddenly have, like Solrag, are actually also a grid, but you know, like it is a grid of organic and moving lines instead of the grid of straight and linear lines.
0: I haven't, I haven't seen the show. It just opened, I think, four days ago, as we're taping this. But I, when I, when I looked in the catalog at Solrag, I held it. I held the catalog open and, and pushed it farther away from my face and pulled it closer because I was, I thought there was a grid there and I was trying to find it. I mean, it's, there's a, there's a tension there that works. You mentioned that the, those harlequin patterns, they're there in paintings like Woman Number no. 2 from, from 2009, Solo Dolo from 2010. Do you think of the Harlequin pattern as a Picasso reference or is there something else about it that is more important to you?
1: All, all thoughts in my paintings for me come afterwards. That's something that you shouldn't forget. You know, like, so, and the titles are actually meditations upon my own paintings as me being the first viewer. It's very, very rare that a painting and its title are de- developing together. So I kind of make the story up after the fact. And, of course, then, uh, especially if I will have colored it in a way that is painterly, the Harlequin pattern is uh, a reference to Cubism and to Picasso and to, you know, like the Harlequin uh, as the figure of, as a self-portrait of the artist, the way it was used in a lot of paintings and uh, the, the history of the figure of the Harlequin throughout history. All those things come up, but they come up later. First, the idea of using it is visual.
0: So you mentioned the Harlequin patterns. I wanted to bring up a painting called, uh Here Goes Nothing, Spuda Galeon. It it if, if viewers look at ManPod if listeners look at manpodcast.com, it's S-P-O-U-D, and then the rest of the word. And so this is a painting in which you use the Harlequin pattern in kind of the lower center of the painting. And you kind of have a polka dot, bend a dot thing just above it. And the way you use the Harlequin pattern seems to be a reference to screen printing and the way you use the polka dots where you really blow them out and make them clear and crisp and big. Is that an example of you taking, I don't know, two things from art history and two ways of making images and of printing images and testing them against each other? What is What is it you get or enjoy about... About that kind of, I don't know, art historical fuckery.
1: To tell you the truth, the way I use those things in my, uh, when I think back of making the painting, I remember that a lot of it was about changing speeds. You know, like uh, there's uh, quite a bit in the painting that is actually done where I did a whole. Uh, shapes filling in them out with pencil. You're like one pencil line next to each other, which gave it a weird metallic feeling. So, uh, in a certain way, it's almost the opposite of screen printing, even though it might have the effect.
0: Let me, let me just jump in really quickly to say that if uh, the pencil is vis- is still visible on this painting, so as a viewer looks at it, it's not as if you've painted over it or just that you used it as a guide. It stayed on. It stayed there and it's visible.
1: Yes, and uh, what I like. Uh what I wanted to have as a feeling in the painting is exactly the strange fragility of a pencil stroke that is still visible and the tentative sketch like effect of it combined with a colour that actually looks as if it is printed on it and so it's both it ha- has its uh, almost like menu of painterly moves that do not look painterly, so the whole painting as a the painting as a whole though in the end can only work in a painterly way. And I like that contradiction, that oxymoron, so to speak, uh, very much uh, in my practice.
0: You know, it's interesting you mentioned the the pencil lines here in this painting. I'm not going to try to pronounce again, because uh, a number of paintings from the mid-2010s have lines that are several planes deep, if you will, lines that look like something between etchings or lines that are etched. That look between that, that look between Paul Clay, um, and then of course just you know look like pencil itself. Is that a play on how many different ways marks can be made on a canvas? Is that a is that a visual reference that matters to you? That we are
1: yes, but it is not uh, simply about uh, a vocabulary of marks. It is more about a mark being disguised as another mark. You know, like somehow the sheep in the wolves and the other way around. That, you know, like I'm using marks, I'm kind of abusing them and making them dance to a different tune so that a line suddenly becomes a plane or, you know, like can can cover a whole area pencil line or that you know like something uh, another line is actually painted with acrylic between two tapes so that it stands out as a really thick thing and it's not a line at all it's actually brushed over two tapes uh, that have just one quarter inch of uh, space between them in general, that is something that happens in my paintings very often. That, you know, like I just the simple change of speed, you know, like that the, what looks fast is actually slow, or the simple change of intention, or the simple change of what a mark seems to talk about and actually is, is uh, kind of paradoxical to uh, what it seems, yes. Well,
0: the place, I, and I, we talked about, a little about this seven years ago when we talked, but uh, when, when we talked on tape is that I think the place where one of the places where you most play with the idea of speed is in in the drips in your paintings and and how whether they're real or not and how fast or slow they seem um, or how likely or unlikely they seem.
1: I don't think I have done that ever since we talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, I, I broke the thing. There are certain things that have changed. I, I've definitely started to not be as controlling as I was then. You know, like it was very much about fooling people at the at the time, starting with myself. So you know, like just kind of in a very simple way, making the painting more interesting, uh, so to speak, by hiding its history. And that's not so important anymore. It's become a style in a certain way. So it's become a style element. So it will still be there. But now I use it in a much more easy way. And the image that comes out of it is to me what I think now I'm more attached to the idea of mood as well. But maybe that's not true. I've always liked the potential that paintings have to actually be moody.
0: There's something you and one of the show's curators, Evelyn Hankins, talk about in the exhibition catalog, which is really terrific and is an awesome, cool object that folds and bends in unusual ways, that I never would have guessed, and that is your use of words and how, I mean, there are some paintings such as Banish Air from Air that that feature words in them, and there are some paintings, and, and, and Banish Air from Air is a is a recent painting, 2018 And there's some paintings like Interventionist Demonstration Why a Duck from 2013 that have gobbledygook that looks like it might be words.
1: And it used to be words at the beginning. The whole painting was covered in sentences. So those uh, sticker-like shapes that are on top of the paintings and look as if they're slogans, actually at one point were slogans that I pinned to the wall of my studio because I just always like to have those mottos or encouragements or whatever or sometimes just intense kind of moments of language on the walls of my studio but they usually do not end up uh, in the paintings. And I have to say uh, the Emily Dickinson uh, painting, Banish Air from Air, that particular poem, Banish Air from Air, is extremely important for me because it's just so insanely abstract and uh, cool and fantastic. And just to think that, you know, like uh, who made it uh, when uh, just blows my mind. So that I had in several versions uh, on the walls of my studio, and one of the versions actually was a fresco, so to, so to speak. So I had glued much more than I, th- I thought I did, a whole roll of canvas onto one wall, and I, I basically had it on my wall, that painting slowly de- developing more as studio decorations than as an actual painting that I wanted to put out into the world. And uh, I was surprised in the end that it actually worked with text in it, but I think it is going to be an exception.
0: Well, that's interesting because there are a number of paintings from about then in which it, it looks, you know, retroactively like you were playing with the idea of of adding text, not not just interventionist demonstration, but paintings like Black Moon Shanty and Bait Ball, where you have these sticker-like passages, and even even maybe a. a a grammary, uh, you know, like an an exclamation point, whatever that's called.
1: The problem is that the mind is not able to not read a text. So when a sentence is in a painting, you every time your eye uh, gets stuck on it, you are going to read that sentence. There's not a single moment where you can look at that sentence without actually reading it. So uh, the power of the sentence, I realized for the first, let's say, maybe even 50 times that I looked at the paintings, did invigorate the painting. And then at some point I was getting tired of reading that sentence. So that's when I started to uh, actually say, uh, you know, like the painting needs to live longer than that. And I just started to change all those slogans on the paintings. I overpainted the sentences and uh, put something that looks like language on it. So the visual effect was the same, but you cannot read them anymore. And that saved the painting.
0: Which inevitably leads to the question, what made it okay to quote recognizable text, indeed a recognizable poem, in Banish Air from Air?
1: I think it is the fact that it's so crookedly painted in words that you cannot read them at once you would actually have to stand there and bend your head this way and that way and try to put the words together and then the text in itself is also so Possibly abstract that uh, it doesn 't immediately put an image into your head that uh, would kind of counteract to the image that I want to have on the painting, so uh, there it actually visually and mood wise helps the painting instead of destroying it.
0: Two more things, one broad, one one really specific we 've been talking about all kinds of painters and techniques that you 've referenced in your work over the many years, Americans. French painters, Swiss, German, yada, yada, yada. is it important to you where those people and paintings are from, and the traditions that out of which they come, or is it all just images from one big soup for you to use
1: it's all just images for me from one big soup to use yeah
0: that, that's what I thought, but I thought I'd check <laughs> <laughs> and, and the the last thing I wanted to ask about is is weird but obvious. There are a bunch of paintings with ducks in them. Interventionist demonstration, why a duck? The duck comes back in Lost Keeper from 2017, four years later. I guess first, why the duck? And then why did it come back four years? Which seems like a pretty long time. You usually kind of work through an idea in one or two years.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you've put your finger on the wound there, or, you know, like onto a crucial, uh, moment, uh, in a certain way. I mean, you know that why a duck is, why a duck is a Groucho Marx sketch. So that's, uh, where he, uh, gets misunderstood as why a duck. But that's an aside. Thing was, uh, I made a bunch of animal drawings at some point, and some of them, as always, some of them worked, some of them ended up on the studio floor. And there was this uh, drawing that had this uh, duck on it that was on the studio floor, and I used the backside of it to cut out some circles that I needed for a stencil in another painting. And at some point, you know, like the drawing I turned around and it was just this uh, mutilated drawing of, you know, like this orange duck that to begin with was actually more a fantasy animal than a duck in itself. But there it had, you know, like turned into this almost abstract shape. And that was then the first time that this shape actually I uh, took it and uh, went with it to see what it actually would look if I would have that shape in a painting. So I uh, stuck it into the painting with some tape and uh, it immediately enhanced the painting. So then I copied it into the painting. And then I started to think, that's interesting. So this is something new. I can use the idea of collage that I had when I uh, started uh, doing paperwork. And that is for me visually such a motor Because of the way that the eye just accepts everything that you can do so much faster when you drop a picture, an an image onto another image. How does it work with painting? Uh, I can never so then I started to try it on small paintings, and I tried it on this one and that one, and it somehow it seemed that every painting suddenly looked better with that damn thing in it, and so I just <laughs> thought, well, okay, and I painted it into every single painting that it looked better with uh more for myself as you know like a meditation on what what's happening here. And it ended up in this big painting, Wireduck, that uh, is actually now at the Art Institute in Chicago. And it's a giant painting, and it has on, and it's a tiny, that duck is a tiny element of it, but it's a key element. And why a duck, the title, title then refers to this thinking process later like, why does it work? Why is this collage gesture so important? And that kick started a whole new body of work. The whole slogans, you know, like, uh, they were cut out of paper first and stuck on uh, the painting, and uh, before I copied them into the painting painstakingly. With, you know, like, which really is actually a lot of slow and stupid work to do. Very helpful in the studio. To, you have to have those moments where you don't have to think about uh, being a genius.
0: <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. Maybe with the exception of the moth, as we were talking about moths in one or two paintings early in the show. You know, with the exception of that, you didn't go back to that move. You didn't go back to the move of using something recognizable and representational. You kind of left it back there in
1: 2013. That's not true. Almost every painting in the last show had one or two elements. There was the head, the orange head in the, in the series of poetry machines that uh, appeared uh, over and over again. There was motif of uh, the bowling pins that I have used now basically over and over again. And there's a whole bunch of images. There's this uh, red rabbit with the red dots that uh, seems to hop through several paintings. And some of them are still in my studio. So uh, it is actually something that I am in the moment even a little bit starting to worry uh, to rely on too much because it is such an opening for the paintings to run on their own.
0: That's, that's, that's funny, because I had thought of the bowling pins, which are in paintings such as Dunes Day from 2016, as kind of hovering between bowling pins and wine bottles, because in day drinking from 2016, <laughs> yeah. their wine bottles. So I had kind of... Yeah, the wine bottle, the same thing. It's also,
1: yeah. It also also came out of paper onto the uh, canvas. And not only a wine bottle, and it has this vulnerability. It also reminds me of the Taylor Dolls in Surrealism at the Kirikos, where they are standing for figures. So I was thinking a lot about figurines. So the painting uh, the uh, that's called The Giddy Road to Ruin has the shape of a figurine in it that also appears in several different other paintings. So it's, it's just because just uh, repainting those drawings or it, it's basically gouache uh, poster paint, but they're painted, they're really fast made on paper, cut out, and then I actually paint them into the paintings and to me it was almost the first time that I do something representational because I copy them to the nines that they exactly look like the original drawings so it's a weird move that lends uh, some eerie feeling to the paintings and I really like the way that works.
0: Me too. Charlene von Heil thanks so much.
1: A pleasure thank you.
0: The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Tudors to Windsors, British Royal Portraits from Holbein to Warhol. Organized in partnership with the National Portrait Gallery London, this sweeping survey of some 150 paintings, sculptures, and photographs spans four dynasties and 500 years of British royal portraiture, exploring a changing nation through artists' depictions of monarchy. On view October 7th through January 27th, only in Houston. Visit mfah.org royals for more. On Tuesday, December 4th at the Getty Center, Dr. Kelly Jones discusses the global reaches of performance art during the 1970s, focusing on projects by David Lamellis, Felipe Ehrenberg, Lords Grobe, Adrian Piper, and Senga Nengudi. Dr. Jones is Associate Professor in Art and Faculty Fellow with the Institute for Research in African American Studies at Columbia University. Get tickets and learn more about this free event at getty.edu slash 360. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents a major survey of works by Laurie Simmons, showcasing the artist's photographs spanning the last four decades from 1976 to the present, a small selection of sculpture, and two films. Simmons's career-long exploration of archetypal gender roles, especially women in domestic settings, is the primary subject of this exhibition, and is a topic as poignant today as it was in the late 1970s when she began to develop her mature style. Organized with full support of the artist, this retrospective exhibition features over 130 works. On view from October 14th to January 27th, 2019. Visit themodern.org for more information. Welcome back. My next guest is art historian Rebecca Bedell. Her new book is Moved to Tears, Rethinking the Art of the Sentimental in the United States. It's a fresh assessment of art that was intended to prompt empathy, nostalgia, and patriotism in the context of its own time, but that has often been read as saccharine when considered through the standards of the present. Bedell teaches at Wellesley College. She's the author of The Anatomy of Nature, Geology and American Landscape Painting, 1825-1875, to 1875, and the curator of the 2009 Fitzwilliam Museum exhibition, Endless Forms, Charles Darwin, Natural Science, and the Visual Arts. Moved to Tears was published by Princeton University Press. It's available from Amazon for $45. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Rebecca Bedell, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really delighted to have this opportunity to talk about my book with you.
0: The full title of the book is Moved to Tears, Rethinking the Art of the Sentimental in the United States. I think if listeners are like me, this will be the first time they've thought about the sentimental as, as being a motivating factor in, in American art. What is sentimental art?
2: Well, one of my biggest aims in this book is to overturn the caricature of sentimental art that was created by modernist rhetoric beginning in the mid 19th century as basically bad art trade and saccharine and formulaic and so on. To me, Uh, sentimental art is fundamentally about connectedness, about our connectedness to others, connectedness to place, connectedness to our conditions of existence. It's, It's art that aims to develop empathetic bonds, art that seeks to represent and elicit softer emotions. What were described in the 18th century as social affections, those emotions that bind us together, like love and affection and compassion and nostalgia and patriotism, emotions like that. So that, to me, is what sentimental art is.
0: It's important to note that you're not just talking about, say, genre painting here. Um, you talk about a lot of landscapes, too. How how can a landscape be, be sentimental?
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so one of my ambitions is to transform what people think about sentimental art and distance it from... Just our conception of sentimental art as, as Hallmark reading cards or calendar images of uh, barefoot boys carrying pails of blueberries genre painting, essentially. Uh, I want to suggest that sentimental art really pervades every type of art that we can find it in, in history painting and portraiture and landscape painting and, and in architecture and landscape design and all sorts of different materials and techniques of, of art making.
0: The book got me thinking that in in the Gilded Age and in early 20th century America, Americans were, you know, in some ways preoccupied with defining manhood as being rough and tumble and muscular. And of course, this is a period when America is urbanizing and suburbanizing. There was, I think Jackson Lears writes about this in particular, that there was concern that America was going soft because it didn't have to work with its hands anymore, were, were, were artists who were engaging the sentimental, engaging with with that cultural thought?
2: I think they were engaging, engaging with an earlier cultural thought beginning in the mid-18th mid century that men were too hard-hearted and that men's feelings needed to be softened, that men were becoming uh, becoming hard-hearted because of urbanization, because of their engagement with market capitalism and something needed to bring forward their their softer, more empathetic, more compassionate side that was being suppressed by these other societal forces. I think that's a kind of operating aspect of the sentimental in the late 18th century and into the mid-19th century. And then I think in the later 19th century, there comes this idea that you're just talking about that that American men have become too soft and they need to be toughened up and some people actually regard the Civil War as a, an important thing that will help to toughen up American men. And So that, that's a kind of long response to your question.
0: Language that also exists in Europe at the outbreak of World War One, right? That the war will toughen people up and toughen up democracy um, or, or toughen up kind of the national culture. We see that language in Germany before World War One. So if we look at mid-19th century America, is the idea of the sentimental that we then see in painting particularly tied to one religion or or strain of religion, or is it kind of equally important to or engaged with from Northeastern Unitarians to Southern Old School Presbyterians?
2: Oh, I I would say that it definitely cuts across religious denominations. I think Beginning in the 18th century, there's an effort to tie sensibility, the sentimental to Christianity, to present Christ, to present Jesus as this archetypal man of feeling and suggest that Christians should follow his example and being compassionate towards others and so on. And I think that feeling cuts across denominations.
0: Let's let's jump in and, and talk about specific paintings and some specific painters. I think probably uh, a great way to be specific is the first place you were specific with a painting by Thomas Hovenden that's now in Philadelphia. Why did you choose to start the book? What is that painting and why did you choose to start the book there?
2: Oh, that painting by Thomas Hubbenden. I think it embodies what everyone expects of sentimental works of art. So it is a domestic genre scene. I should say it's uh, painted in, in was painted in the early 1890s. It was shown at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, where it was the most popular painting at the fair. People gathered in front of it and they wept. And they were weeping in front of a painting that shows a young man, about to leave his home in the country, saying farewell to his mother, his sister, his other family members, his dog, and about to leave for the city. And it's painted in a very realistic, accessible style. It's a painting that seems explicitly designed to tug at our heartstrings, uh, and that's what I think people expect sentimental art to be. And it is a sentimental work of art, but it's just, I think, to me, just one one type of sentimental sentimental art
0: and people loved that tug
2: loved painting. Reporters from all over the country wrote about that painting. They described the emotional state of every family member in the picture, even the dog. And so, yes, I think that part of the sentimental is an an engagement with an attempt to place yourself into positions of others. And that is a painting that certainly invites that. So it is a kind of architecture typically a sentimental work of art, and people standing in front of it shared their own feelings with each other about the pain of leaving home. Some of them never saw their families again once they left home for the city or wherever they had gone, and they wept together in front of that painting. So I began there with a picture that very definitely moved contemporary viewers to tears.
0: So in the book, you reproduced this Hovenden in, in, in black and white. Is it so out of favor and knowledge that black and white was all that was available?
2: No, it's because they were going to charge me $500 for it. <laughs> so I figured I would just stick with black and white. It was one of those instances where it was not public domain.
0: As I said earlier, the painting is in the collection of the Philadelphia Museum of Art.
2: The Pennsylvania Academy is very good at giving things so that for example the Gross clinic is owned jointly by the Pennsylvania Academy and the Philadelphia Museum so I asked the Pennsylvania Academy for the image
0: <laughs> So we'll have an image of that Hovenden, on on manpodcast.com The next artist I wanted to bring up was uh, was Tanner um, his, his the banjo lesson First how does the painting engage your idea of the sentimental, and second, I think this Tanner is a good example of how you point out that artists themselves talk in terms of the sentimental. And could you detail how he does that?
2: Sure. I think Tanner is one of the great sentimental artists of, of his time, in the later 19th century, early 20th century. He's an African-American artist. The the Banjo Lesson, probably his most famous work, a work that's reproduced in almost every textbook of American art these days. And it was his response to what he felt were the very negative images of african americans being produced by white artists at that time and earlier and what it shows is a grandfather giving a banjo lesson to a boy who's standing between his legs a kind of pyramid in the center of the picture and the painting is suffused with soft luminous light that forms almost a halo around this pair and you just feel looking at it the the tenderness between that those unspoken bonds of affection between those figures and of course that to me is is fundamentally sentimental and he think he wanted to change certainly white viewer's minds to make clear to them the love, the dignity, the family bonds that were as essential to African-American families as to any others. So that's also an an element of the sentimental that I draw out throughout the book is its efforts, its, its political dimension, its efforts at transforming the way Um, The way society thinks about different issues, uh, in this case, about African-Americans' dignity and humanity and equality in relation to any white viewers looking at that painting.
0: Tanner himself said that, quote, he who has most sympathy with his subject will obtain the best results. I mean, that's in in some ways a, you know, that word sympathy is, is almost, I don't know, definitional. It's it. It really allies his thinking with with your construct.
2: Absolutely. And so sympathy is at the core of the sentimental. That's where the sentimental begins with this belief that we can and we should attempt to think ourselves into the positions of others who are distant and different from ourselves. and Adam Smith writes about in his theory of moral sentiments back in the 18th century, he believes that's the origin of our of our conscience and certainly the origin of our compassion is that uh, that sympathetic ability to place ourselves in positions of others and art and novels and so many art forms of that era elicit those sort of experiences for us.
0: You have a whole chapter on on Winslow Homer, which uh, for me is one of the most interesting chapters in the book. Homer is, as an oil painter, I, I, I've always had a hard time with Homer's oil paintings, but his watercolors are... Extraordinary, um, and his illustrations, going back to the Civil War period and, and just after, are, are are gripping. So, a couple of Homer questions. First, let's talk about a specific painting. Um, I chose "Rustic Courtship in the Garden" from eighteen seventy four. It's a watercolor of a young man standing outside a house. A, a, a woman is leaning through a window. Uh, an open window above him. He's kind of in an aw, gee, shucks pose, you know, in a carefully considered (laughs) aw, gee, shucks pose. Paintings at the National Gallery, we'll have it on manpodcast.com. How does this painting engage your idea? And and I mean, you could have chosen a lot of Homer's and did, but why, why did you like this one in particular?
2: This one, this figure, as in many, many, many of Winslow Homer's works, the central character, the young farmer who seems to be attempting to woo the young lady in the window above him, stands with his back towards us, which I think enhances certain ways our, our empathetic identification with him. And he stands with a hay fork across his shoulders with his hands spread out almost like I, I say in the book, like like a man on a cross. He seems so vulnerable with his heart open to this young woman and she doesn't look like he's particularly receptive to him, so I at least feel this enormous empathy for this young man worrying about him, worrying about someone who's just declared himself and may well be rejected. And I think that Homer hints that he will be rejected. So all the ways that Homer engages our our sympathy in this picture, I think, makes it a, a fundamentally sentimental work of art, imagining ourselves into this place of this poor young farmer waiting for his face, to be decided by that attractive young lady. Homer
0: starts out as an illustrator. And I think one of the reasons the watercolors sit better with me than the oil paintings is because his strengths as an illustrator, which were significant, better fit watercolor as, as a medium. Is there something about Homer's background as an illustrator or, or Edward Hopper's for that matter that that fits sentiment and, and, and sentimentality in the work?
2: Oh, for sure. But I think that it was was Homer's work. Well, I should say first that Homer is almost always described in literature as being unsentimental. Winslow Homer is never sentimental. People say that over and over again in the scholarship. And yet, um, as I was just describing to you, I feel like he is a deeply sentimental artist, empathetic and nostalgic and tender and so on. And I think he he grew up with the sentimental as, as a genre. In his illustration from very early on, he did illustrations for sentimental songs and illustrations for sentimental stories for the various publications that he was working for. So he understood it. He understood that he was setting these characters into stories and that that readers were going to be engaged with and imagining the fate of these figures. And then I think he brings that to his his individual paintings once he moves away from illustration.
0: When listeners buy the book, they should turn to chapter five, the Homer chapter, and read the beginning of it because it's a pretty great foot stomp. So we haven't talked about landscapes yet, and and one of the—it wasn't a surprise to me, because there's a a landscape on the cover of the book, but I was particularly interested to see how you made landscapes sentimental, and and the discussion of George Innes is really interesting. Is Innes sentimental beginning to end, or are there bodies of his work that—periods in his work that interest you most?
2: I think he becomes increasingly sentimental— over over the years i think that the further you move through his career the more that themes of loss and longing a kind of elegiac wistfulness for the passing uh, particularly of the pastoral way of life as it gives way to the suburban and the urban i think that suffuses his late landscapes. And you feel it so strongly because at a time when he's living in a suburban enclave and when he's visiting New York City and seeing those places burgeoning and seeing trees cut down and so on, forests disappearing around him, he clings to images of pastoral landscapes, even wilderness landscapes in his art, and presents them in a style that's so Soft and gauzy that you feel like they're like they're disappearing before your eyes that they're receding away from you as you look at them and to me, that's where this Sentimental the sentimental feelings of loss of longing really come in as we see these these landscapes that seem to be dissolving before our eyes
0: dissolve is such a great word and the painting about which around which you, you talk about this maybe the most is Innes' October Noon from 1891. It's at Harvard. There's both a reproduction of it in the book and a detail, so I gather it was a particular favorite of yours. Also, Harvard images are free. <laughs> and one of the things in this painting that jumped out at me, even before I'd read the text after I turned the page, was that suburbia is on the march and coming toward us
2: yes i think that this is a painting that more directly maybe than than almost any of those late landscapes addresses this idea of the loss of the pastoral landscape and the way that it is all around us giving way to suburbia and then suburbia giving way to the urban and that's all described on the horizon line of that landscape where uh, if you start from the right edge of the picture and move away across just past center there's a really thick a wedge of trees, and tucked in the middle of the that forest is a little white house that's surrounded by a white aura, and there's smoke rising from its chimney. It's this house that's still embowered in in nature, and then not far beyond it, the the trees just cut off; they just stop, and. Then you move into suburbia where there are houses that don't seem to be surrounded anymore by trees.
0: No, I was just saying, you know, I was just trying to underscore the rapidity with which that copse of trees ended. I mean, it's just a it's a straight line. Boom. It's the it's the hardest, firmest, clearest line in the whole painting.
2: (laughs) Yes, it's very dramatic. I I was kind of surprising people hadn't talked about it before because it's so striking when you look at the picture and think, why? Why would a forest just stop like that?
0: (laughs) Well, the answer is right to the left of the forest, right? There's a house there. I mean, suburbia is mowing it down.
2: Exactly. That all the pastoral is giving way, and you see it giving it way right there at that moment, at that little patch in the picture. You see the end of one era and the beginning of another.
0: You extend the idea of the sentimental into portraiture, probably m- mostly or especially especially with Sargent. What in Sargent's
2: Portraiture, do you think fits best? Oh, yes. Yeah. Sargent is a very interesting case to me, but he's another one of those artists that is always talked about as though he is unsentimental, that he can rigidly excluded any sentiment from his art, that he's almost cold and cruel in his representations of his subjects or that they're just superficial and have no real emotions in them. And and it may be true of, of some of them, but for the most part, I, I, don't, I don't think that is a, the correct way to think about Sargent. I, I was quite interested in reading in the in the primary literature on Sargent that he described himself as being very sentimental. Maudlin sentimental is the way he described himself when he was a boy, and he said that he's still a very sentimental person. And his friends describe him the same way. But he also felt this need when he was in public or around others to contain those sentimental feelings. So I think they are also contained in his art in in certain ways. But then other times he Opens up to his subjects and you feel uh, his sentimental connection to them. One that his contemporaries felt it most strongly in was in a, a portrait of a little girl named Beatrice. Golette, I'm not entirely sure that's how you pronounce her last name. It's a tiny little girl, four or five years old, in a brocaded gown. It's certainly looking back to paintings by Velasquez and Goya, their images of children.
0: Right down to the cage, often present in yeah.
2: Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. I think of, of Goya's paintings of children there. I mean, she's against this dark background and but her face is so tender and she's pressing her little fingers before her as though she feels the gravity this occasion and she's trying into some way behave at that moment. And uh, uh, those who, who saw it at the time said that Sargent clearly, anything that was soft in his character, he had poured into this picture all of his sentiment, all his feelings of tenderness are here in this painting. And Mariana van Rensselaer, who's one of the, the great critics of that time, she said that tears rose in her eyes when she was looking at it. When, when Sargent read her review, he was so touched himself that he took out his stationery and wrote her letter and told her how very pleased he was by her review because he said he was so rarely given credit for inside, so to speak. Those were his words to her. So there is definitely a, a sentimental element in his portraits that comes through now and again.
0: Finally, until the epilogue, when you engage Robert Adams's work, virtually every example in the book is of the art of the of, of made by artists from or working in the northeast sergeant of course working in europe were artists working in the west you know the william keiths and such or, or bierstadt who spends a lot of time in the west just not interested or is there a reason why ideas around the sentimental were particularly interesting to or well suited to northeasterners
2: Oh no, I don't. I don't think so. I actually hadn't thought that that was. I tried to be kind of broadly representative, but I hadn't thought about being certain that I included or represented the West because, for certain landscape artists who were working in the West, almost all landscape artists of that time were concerned with the same issues of, of loss and longing that uh, that landscape artists based in the East Coast were. Carton Watkins' photographs of Yosemite, as you know well, I think that. Those were bound up with a a desire for places of solace and refuge and consolation that hadn't yet been touched by progress, as they thought of it, or hadn't yet been touched by the horrors of the Civil War. I think, think all those images are shot through with sentimental themes.
0: Yeah, I think I would. I think having having after reading the book, I think I would. You know, I know there's no go-to William Keith monograph, which amazes me. And maybe some of that's because Keith's best paintings aren't, aren't in Northeastern collections. They've stayed in the West, but, but I think Keith fits a lot of what's here really well. Rebecca Bedell. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you. It was a great pleasure.
0: That's all for this week's show. The modern art notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program.